0: Everybody, welcome to the True Crime Squad. I'm Christy Brower, and I will be your host today. So today is a sum-up episode for the Lori Vallow trial from yesterday. I had planned to do it last night, but I gotta admit, I was so damn tired, I just had to hit the couch. So I thought, well, today is better than nothing, and you know, maybe Saturday is easier for some people to get around, but Definitely wanted to tell you about court yesterday because, well, you know, um, things were contentious. Let's just say that. There was more opposition from the defense than I've seen, except maybe for the autopsy photos of the children. This was huge, okay? They did not want... Agent Hart, who is an an agent with the FBI, he was the lead case agent on this case. They did not want this guy to testify at all. And they fought very hard to stop him from testifying. And it did not work. So let me tell you a little bit about what happened, how things started out. So it was one of those court days where everything gets started and they do not bring the jury in. Because anytime there's contention like this, they don't want that to color what the jury thinks, because the jury has to look at the evidence and the evidence alone. And these arguments, I think, would definitely have an impact on the jury, an impact on me, let me tell you. So... Thursday, at the end of the day, there was a big argument over this exhibit that FBI agent Doug Hart wanted to bring in during his testimony. It is a slideshow, it's a summary of two iCloud accounts, Lori's Lori for Style and Lolly Time. And it is like hundreds of thousands of records long, it is massive. And so Agent Hart had put together a summary for one to prompt himself because it's way more information than um, he could possibly remember. Also, he wanted to be able to quote some text messages. We're starting to see the text messages. We definitely didn't see the ones I was hoping for yet, but it's coming, Uh, but he needed that for himself. Plus it was just to help give context for the jury because it's so much information. Well, the problem is that when he wrote that summary, he provided it to the prosecutor's office and it included slides that were basically instruction to the prosecutors. Use this text, this text, blah, blah, blah. Then say this in your closing, you know, in your closing argument, this kind of stuff. He was giving some direction on how to close this case in order to win it. Which, yay, let's get as much of that as we can. But they submitted it like that as an exhibit. And the defense was furious about it. Did I want I did want to say voluminous because the voluminous virus did strike in court yesterday, which also was awesome, and I'll tell you about that. Um, but I don't know why they submitted it this way. It was it made them look kind of dumb, the prosecution, honestly. I don't know why they thought it would be okay to submit it with all of that. Like this guy's opinion and what he should, what they should uh, make a priority and that kind of thing It was weird. And I don't know if they just had not seen it enough to know it was in there or whatever. So on Thursday, the defense was like, hell no. And they also said they don't even want this guy to testify at all. And the reason they didn't want him to testify is because he, they say he broke the exclusionary rule. So Friday morning comes along, they have edited and amended that report, that uh, summary. They've taken out all of the instruction to the prosecutor. Duh, I don't know why that didn't happen before. I honestly felt like this was pretty dumb move on the prosecution. So they turn it back in with just the data from these two iCloud accounts. And the judge looks through it and he's like, okay, this looks fine to me. This looks like an exhibit that can go in. And then we get to every single time um, the argument of hearsay from the defense. And John Thomas listed off, I don't know, 15 to 20 pages of the report that contain hearsay. And he went on and on and on about for the 403b. You've heard 403b over and over again. Well, that's the hearsay rule. You can't just go in court and say my neighbor's friend told my neighbor, and I tell you know, and I'm going to tell you what they said. That's not considered legal evidence, right? Except when those conversations are happening between co-conspirators, and that negates the hearsay rule. If they are conspiring together to commit a crime, then everything they say to each other is admissible. So. Um, right, Ellie, it is damning testimony. And that is why they're fighting so hard. This is really important because what a lot of what we heard yesterday is stuff we already knew, but what we're hearing it now, the way we're hearing it now is in chronological context. It starts from the day that Lori and Chad met up until the day she stopped using those iCloud accounts. So that's really important. That's why the defense was doing everything they could to make sure this did not get in. Um, so Thomas argues the whole hearsay thing and the judge comes back and says, okay, noted it's on the record, you know, but, uh, you know, as you know, um, you know, I've been considering this case with co-conspirators, which means that it isn't hearsay. So then they argue, okay, fine. The exhibit is in, but we don't even want this witness in because he has broken the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule, we know, because we've been hearing quite a bit of breaking it is that if you've been subpoenaed to testify in this trial, you are not allowed to listen to any audio of the trial, watch any video about people talking about the trial, like us, like um, reading any news stories or speaking directly to any witnesses. You're not allowed to do any of that because it could skew what you say. Well... This FBI agent, who by the way, isn't even an FBI agent anymore, he's now the chief deputy of the Canyon County Sheriff's Office. So he retired from the FBI in 2022, went to work for the Canyon County Sheriff's Office. But at the time that this investigation was going on, he was the lead FBI investigator. He helped prep some of the witnesses. He helped with trial prep. And You know, right. He seemed very honest to me as well. He was very professional. He's extremely knowledgeable. He has a ton of experience. So he wasn't doing anything untoward. He was speaking to witnesses before they testify, not after they testify. So they have all that whole big argument. And the judge says, well, we can bring him in and and you all can question him about whether he not, not, about whether or not he broke the exclusionary rule. And they let the exhibit in. And then just... Because he's just always got to get the last word sometimes, I think. John Thomas jumps in one more time and he says, Your Honor, can I just basically pre-object to all of the pages that I have said have hearsay rule on them? And can we put that on the record right now so that I don't have to continually interrupt and object to every single thing this guy says, which didn't matter because he did it anyway. But um, so they say yes. So he pre-objects and they listed all all the different pages that he's pre-objecting to. And, you know, just he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But it cracks me up, um, the pre-objecting part. I just thought that was hilarious. Um, also, because they absolutely did not want this guy on the stand, which is so telling. And, and I can see why the jury shouldn't be privy to that, because they would have been going, oh, we need to really listen up to this dude, because he's got some stuff to say. So they agree to all of that. And then they get A- Agent Hart on the stand so that they can, um, you know, examine him to see if he broke the rule. Let's see. And so the jurors are still out of the courtroom. Oh, I'll tell you. So the exhibit, the pages he, he objected to are 2, 5, 7, 15, 43, 46, 72, 73, 75, 80, 81, 82, 83, and 84. <laughs> They listed out that list of numbers, I bet five or six times, which was kind of funny. Okay. So they bring Hart in and Smith asks him, you know, have you read any witness testimony, talked to anybody after they um testified, anything like that? And he says no. That he was, he did say that he was a part of pretrial preparation with the prosecutors. Um, but he didn't, you know, hasn't talked to anybody after. They testified. Um, He hasn't read or watched anything. You know, he said, I have obeyed that order rigorously. This dude is a very experienced FBI agent. He knows he can't do that. He knows that it would make his testimony null and void. And that would be really important. That would be a really bad idea. Right. So then Archibald gets him. And we know this is this is his job. But some of the stuff he said was so it was so funny. So he wanted to know if he had reviewed the statements of any of the FBI uh, agents, employees who made statements at the trial. And he said no. His job, because he was the supervisor of their office at the time, he reviewed their work as it came in. And he approved their reports as they were submitted. But he didn't talk to them about their testimony. So we went all through that. And then he wants to know, if Archibald, Archibald Aston, him, have you talked with the FBI agent? Um, first of all, okay, let me give it to you, the rundown. Um, he says, is there an FBI employee sitting in this courtroom right now? And Smith objects that that's irrelevant. And the judge says, okay, it is irrelevant. And so then he says, so he tries to re... Tries to rephrase that same question like three times and gets shot down every single time. So then he says, "So there's an FBI agent or there's an FBI employee sitting in the um, in the uh, audience today. Have you spoken to that person?" This took like five minutes of round around him trying to answer, ask him this question over and over again, basically trying to imply that because there is another person that works for the FBI that's in the audience, that they must have spoke to one another. Prior to his testimony. And he's very adamantly saying, No, we haven't spoken at all. Goes on and on and on. But this was kind of like their last hurrah to get him kicked out. Um, and he just would not give in on it. And so then Boyce says, Okay, he has not violated the exclusionary rule and he's in. So, of course, they bring in the jurors and they do the whole thing. So they start talking about Hart's experience as a as an FBI agent and you know if you've listened to the audio I don't always go into detail on this part but you know that if you listen to the audio they go into depth about when they have experts on the stand or professionals about their experience and what makes them an expert in this area what what why should we be listening to what they have to say right so Smith is going through that whole thing with heart he's been he was an fbi agent from september of 1995 to 2022 he talks about all of his first assignment you know where he was first assigned and all the things he worked on then he worked on, t- worked on the nest purse reservation talked about all of that and you know how then he became the supervisory senior um, registered agent in 35 counties or 34 counties in southern idaho they're they're going on and on and um Going through all of this stuff, and you know, they're talking about some of the cases that he's been on, not specifically, but some of them. Um Archibald objects and says, Your Honor, he's just patting his credibility. <laughs> Which was funny. I've not seen them, the 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 defense, object to anybody sharing, you know, their credibility until this guy. This is how intensely they did not want this man to speak and um smith just the judge said well just just keep it short to smith and so she just keeps on asking him all of his questions because one of the things that he has direct training and experience in is working with clandestine graves which is when somebody buries a body that they don't want to be found and um Yes. And he the reservation experience, he did a lot of work identifying graves, working on, you know, if you know anything about um, reservations, at least in this part of the country, they're desert because we're desert. We're, we're high desert, which means that we're, we get a lot of snow and cold, but we also get hot in the summer and we have, you know, like big sagebrush and stuff. So he was talking about his experience with how to identify a clandestine grave, how to, how to discover something is a clandestine grave and find it basically, and that kind of thing. They went through all of that. It was really good because he was laying a really significant foundation for why this is someone you should listen to. And at this point, the jury is in the room, which I was really happy about because they needed to talk about that. He um, also talked about why the FBI... Uh, came in on this case. Um, he said the FBI has taken the stance that when a child goes missing, our capabilities, coupled with local and state investigators, need to be brought to bear immediately so we can seek the best outcome in locating and recovering those children. So, if a child is abducted and they go across state lines, the FBI has to get involved. That's required. But they typ- typically offer their services in all child abduction situations or missing children situations. And then they come in and they can work alongside law enforcement, but law enforcement, they they offer themselves to law enforcement. Law enforcement can say no, um, which I know that they sometimes do if they feel like they have it under in hand, or there can be, you know, kind of dick measuring contests in these situations, but in this one, there wasn't FBI offered their services and, you know, the police departments up here were like, yes, please, you know, we are in way over our heads. He said that it's really, really important when a child is abducted or goes missing to get there as soon as possible, because if a child is going to be killed by their abductor, it will likely happen within 24 hours of their abduction. So you have this really small window to respond. Now, that's really important because this case was handled differently by the FBI because these children had been missing for months before they'd been reported. I'm quite sure that he and the other FBI agents that have worked on missing children's cases, they knew these kids were dead from day one, as long as they'd been gone before anybody even knew to look for them. So then they start admitting more um, exhibits. So they have these two thumb drives. One thumb drive has the Lori for Style iCloud account on it, the whole thing downloaded to that thumb drive. And then the other one is the Lollytime um, iCloud account and it has the whole thing downloaded to it. And these are these gigantic files. And so he they hand him the thumb drives uh, Smith hand him, hand him hands him the thumb drives and he says, yes, these are the ones that I did. I, I got the records from Apple for the iCloud accounts and then copied those those entire accounts onto these two. Smith, these two thumb drives, Thomas objects to these being admitted because of the multiple cases of hearsay in the documents. Remember how he wasn't going to have to say it again? Well, he did. <laughs> and uh, the the prosecutor Smith, she said, well, it's communication from the defendant. It is Lori's accounts, which we've already established. And one of the things I was thinking about is how we've seen so many things are so repetitive. We're hearing the same information over and over and over again. But one of the the reasons for that, they are making sure that the jury understands that the due diligence has been done to know for 100% or as close as you can, that that, um, these two iCloud accounts do in fact belong to Lori Vallow, and that they do in fact contain her communications. So we've been hearing a lot about these iCloud accounts from a lot of different experts, but this is why they verify over and over and over again from lots of different angles. Number one, to make sure that they aren't, attrib- excuse me, attributing this information to the wrong person. But They also want to be able to prove that, yeah, we 100% know this was lo- lo- lolly- Lori's stuff. This was her data from her phones. So, you know, Again, we've heard that all before, but again, that's why. So uh, the voice does um, overrule the objection. Now, the the defense, because they like to always claim that they have not received anything, uh, you know, say that they're not sure that they have all of this information and they need, they need new thumb drives with new copies of it. <laughs> and Smith, this was kind of a nice little, she got a little jab in. She said, your honor, Could I please just show the defense where these these files already exist in their discovery? Because we have most certainly given them to them. They've had them since August of 2021, which I thought was kind of funny. But to appease them, basically what Smith was saying was, please don't make me put these on thumb drives again, because I bet it takes hours to transfer this information to a thumb drive. It is huge amounts of information. And the judge was like, no, you've got till Monday, but you got to give them thumb drives. They're such babies, you know, they want the prosecution to do everything for them. They have this information, but they have to go looking for it, just like the prosecution did. Anyway, so the judge said, yeah, you got to have the thumb drives. So they're going to do that. He overrules the objection about hearsay because this is not subject to hearsay exclusion. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, because again... (laughs) The defense, we don't have time to go through 100,000 pages of documents right now. Um, well, they had a while to have gone through them, but whatever. So they're getting the thumb drives so they can look through them and decide if they want to object to anything later. I don't know. So then we have to take a break. Well, no, not quite yet. Um, Rob's Rob Wood is going to be abs- assisting Smith with this because it's real technical. And I don't know if you have noticed, if you've listened to any of the audio, But Smith seems to be one of those people that when she touches technology, it breaks or stops working. She can never get the projector to work. She always has trouble getting everything to work. So she's got Rob Wood standing by to to be the IT guy for this. Um, Hart also worked as the FBI Behavioral Analysis Coordinator for Idaho. So he's worked closely with the BAU for about 13 years. He is not himself a profiler, although he's had a lot of profiler training. But he coordinated the, B, the BAU in into cases in Idaho. Um, he also was a part of a unit called CARD, which is the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team. And that's what deployed to Rexburg. Uh, they were called the day after the welfare check on the kids. That was November 26th of 2019. The FBI was called in on November 27th of 2019. And they brought a mobile unit up here and parked it behind the police station. Um, Well, not here, but in Rexburg uh, immediately and started working immediately with them to assist with these missing children's cases. this this particular missing children's case. Um, They were contacted, but they weren't called in initially. What happens with CARD is usually they're called in immediately and then they jump into find the kid mode before they get killed. That's basically what they're doing. And he said that they knew in this case that they would handle this differently than that because the kids had been missing for so long. They weren't looking to find live children and and they knew it. Uh, Which I think was really sad, but it was very clear that in their experience and the parameters that they use to do their work, they knew that they didn't need to actually deploy their like recovery unit immediately because they were not going to be finding live kids, which we've all thought, and you know, we've all thought this and probably said it, but it was interesting to hear like just from the FBI standpoint and their experience with these things. It was, you know, this was not as big of an emergency as it would have been if those kids had gone missing the day before. So he lives in Boise, but he was traveling back and forth to Rexburg multiple times every month um, as they were searching for the kids and try, and investigating this situation. So he was the supervisor over this case for the FBI, but he was also the lead investigator. Right about the time that they got um, the call about JJ and Tylee, two of his agents left their jobs for like planned reasons. And so it was basically him and one other agent in the Pocatello office or based out of the Pocatello office, but he lived in Boise. Anyway, the FBI, the closest FBI office to us is in Pocatello, Idaho, which is about 50 miles South of me. Uh, So he had a very hands-on role in this case because they didn't have enough investigators in the area at the time. He did um, interview witnesses Um, and he was also present at the, the search at the house on June 9th. He and another officer are actually the ones who found JJ's grave. And then his other job was to review these two iCloud storage accounts. Let's see. I'm going to roll my notes up here. Um, So they had multiple FBI agents on scene on June 9th, plus lots of local law enforcement as well. And he said the first thing they did is they just walked the property looking for evidence. And as they were doing that, they found JJ's grave. And here's what he said. When you're looking for a clandestine grave, there are certain telltale signs that you would want to find. If a grave has been dug, the vegetation around where the digging took place is slightly different than the vegetation around that Typically, you see a mound of dirt where the grave has been dug, or you'll see a depression in the earth where the person has been buried. He also talked about um, uh, changes to the vegetation in, in height and it potentially in color. And he said that sometimes you can see the seams, which are the outside edge of the grave itself. And that is what he saw in in um, J.J.'s burial, because th- this was like deep, tall, like, pasture grass so when they dug his grave they cut out um the sod on top because it wasn't just dirt they had to cut out the sod flip it over and then they put it back down on top so he spotted that he and another um officer spotted that quite quickly Um, there was a yellow spot in in the grass and that had really that really stuck out to him. And they showed images of, of the grave. And he just talked about having found it. He said he got down and felt on the ground and he could feel the seams around where the sod had been cut out and then replaced. He also used a probe, which is a rod that you poke down into the ground because you're looking for softer earth that's been disturbed. But what he found at JJ's grave was that it didn't hardly go in the ground at all and hit something hard. Well, we know that there were rocks and a board on top of JJ in his grave. So they immediately started digging there um, and they found JJ. He said that the grave was about, what did he say? Like 18 inches wide, wide across and 48 inches long. And Smith said, so child size. And he said, yes. Smith does a really good job of bringing out specific language, I think, that will be meaningful to the jury by asking questions that using using language that he will then mirror back. That, you know, when you describe a grave as child size, that's that has a pretty big impact on everyone listening. She did a great job with him. Uh, Let's see. He also um, helped to uh, find uh, Tylee's remains as well. So then we get back to the iCloud accounts. He says he has several years of experience analyzing. Here it is. Voluminous amounts of records. (laughs) There was one instance. Um, He said voluminous. Um, Smith said it. Several people said it. It was said three or four times yesterday. I noted it in our Twitter feed because I thought it was funny. Got to find something funny in this, right? So he said, whatever is on your smartphone is in the iCloud. And this is, of course, in relation to um, Apple phones particularly. He said, it's more than a mirror of your account. It's a storage device of the activity of your phone. It contains your contacts, your messages, your cookies, your strings, which is data that's been deleted, but hasn't been fully overwritten yet. Um, It contains images and videos and anything else, any other information that your phone contains will be in that backup cloud. Hang on, gotta take a break. Yeah, he was very professional. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. It was was such an interesting day. And I'll tell you a little bit more about just what it was like in that courtroom yesterday too, in my courtroom where I was. So he's just explaining, you know, like he said, if you delete something from your phone to increase your storage on your phone, um, but if your phone is backed up to the cloud, that still exists. So that information isn't gone. It's just not on your phone. And then he talked about carved strings, and those are data that have been deleted actually from the iCloud because you can go in and delete things directly from the iCloud, but I think most people don't think to do it. They think if it's off the phone, it's gone. He said they're kind of bits and pieces of messages that will hang around for a while. Um, He said that they weren't really any value um, in this particular investigation. He didn't need to go that deep because honestly, there wasn't that much of an attempt to hide what these people were doing, you know? So he said one of the things uh, that he can do with the software that he uses, it's called Cellbrite. And you can use it to filter information. Because one of these um, iCloud accounts, the Lolly for Style, started in December of 2000. So it was... It was about 19 years worth of information on that account. The other one didn't start until like spring of 2019. So he didn't have as much, but he started looking at data from October 26th, 2018. That's the day that Chad and Lori met at a preparing a pupil conference in St. George. And if you'll remember, some of our previous witnesses said that This is when they first met. I was there. I saw that, you know, whatever. So we're establishing. We know exactly when their relationship began. And that's really important because I learned something yesterday I did not know. So then we take a morning break because they need it was a long break. It was a 30 minute break because they needed a lot of time to get the technology all set up and ready so that they could start showing the slides that went with this testimony. So he's using this Celebrite um, program, which is a digital intelligence company, and they provide tools for federal, state, and local law enforcement, and they're used to collect data off from digital devices. And I will tell you that I got that information from Nate Eaton. Thank you, Nate. Um, So then he brings um, an image up on the screen and it is a menu of all of the different categories of things that were found in, in the iCloud account for um, Lori and for uh, Lori for Style and Lolly Time. Um, in his time frame, October 26th till right about the time that the welfare check happened and they ran, she stopped using both of these accounts. This is when she went to burner phones for her primary communication. But up to that point, there were 13,000 text messages, along with images, voicemails, videos, all of that stuff. So you can see why a summary had to be. We cannot read 13,000 text messages. That's just not going to happen. Um, Lori for style had a lot fewer, or LolliTime had a lot fewer files because it was you know, April of 2019 is when it was first started. So it wasn't as big of an account. He says he has to follow a really methodical process because this is so complicated and it's so much information. So he would open one compartment, which is like text messages, for example, and he would do his filter. So he would filter, and then he would start going through each message, and he would copy and paste into his own document each message that he felt like was relevant, and he would use the the date and time stamps and the who. They who they were from, obviously Lori, and who they were to, and what she was getting back and forth from all of these different people. Right, Wink. Chad and Lori thought they were smarter than everyone else. Promises. Problem is they weren't very, they really hadn't. Um they they really weren't smart. They didn't cover up at all. Oh, thank you, Kristen. I'm I'm glad to be here. I will tell you, I'm much more coherent this morning <laughs> than I would have been last night. These weeks are long, you guys. We're doing a live stream every single night, and following this trial along with all of the other things that we do, we get tired. I was so trash last night. I thought I don't even think I can put two words together. So I feel better today. Uh, let's see. Smith wanted to know how many records of data were on the iCloud, and this we're talking about the. Uh, I think we're talking about the Lori for Style. There and he says he doesn't know exactly, but it's somewhere between 130 and 150,000 records. So, way too much. So, he goes through and he reads every single text and he starts putting, creating a document that is chronological to include anything that stands out to him that would be significant in relation to this case because he already has all of this other information, right? He already knows what all of the other investigators have found. They've already got a pretty clear um, idea of motive and of, you know, kind of what to be looking for. And so then he goes through to compile it. And this is one of the things that I think that the de- defense didn't like because he's using his own discernment. He's, these, are, these things are his opinion. The information is not his opinion, but the things he included are. But when you hear his experience and background, you can see why this is a guy who would look at those text messages and know exactly what he was looking for, in my opinion. Let's see, so he starts creating this document and he said, you know, not every single text that Lori sent had anything to do with this investigation. Um, There are lots of just normal everyday stuff about the kids or." hey, how are you? Or, you know, just chatty, you know, friends kinds of things. He said he didn't include them because they weren't important. We need to filter out all of that to the stuff that is. Um, Mm -hmm. At this time, Lori is kind of chatting with her attorneys and writing notes on her on her yellow pad. She's just being Lori had a very um, standard day for her. Uh, Let's see. He started the initial review of this account um, before the kids were found. And he estimated that it's taken him about 200 hours to go through all these records. Can you imagine going 200 hours through Lori's text messages and emails and stuff? Give me a break. I would never want to do that. So he discovered leads in the messages like that Lori and Chad were saying that they wanted to get Married and have a life together. That's a definite lead, you know? He said there were several communications regarding JJ and Tylee that were relevant to their deaths. They discussed their deaths in the text messages. And after the affair began, um, then there was communication regarding the deaths of Charles Vallow, Tammy Daybell, JJ Vallow, and Tylee Ryan, that they started talking in their communications about the deaths of these four individuals. Hart said he also found financial information and just other information regarding the relationship between Alex Cox and Lori and Chad. He did say at one point that it was very clear from some of the communication that he saw that Chad and Alex had a fairly significant relationship with each other. It wasn't just, um, you know, Oh, he's Lori's brother, but no, they had quite a bit of communication between themselves as well. Um, And you can see You'll see how that kind of comes out as we talk about this. Um, he said that in the communications, there are direct references to a large life insurance policy that Charles had, as well as Social Security payments that JJ and Tylee had. Remember remember the opening um, arguments, power, sex, and money. That's what this case is about. That's what Lindsay Blake said. And it's really becoming so much clearer in the messages how true that is. I think these messages really help us to start weed out, weeding out how much of this truly was religious fanaticism and how much of this was just plain old, I want to get rid of my family so I can be with my hot girlfriend and have lots of money. Which I think is key because the religious stuff muddies the water and makes it confusing and makes people question their own beliefs and wonder if you know if it's okay to, you know, come at them for their beliefs, that kind of thing. And the the Um, defense has said that quite a few times. But when you see these communications, you realize that that's not really what this was about. It's about the money. It's about sex. It's about them being together. And it's about um, power, being in charge of their lives and getting out of things that they don't want to do anymore as full grown adults. Right, Jessica, I like that he removed the clutter. Yeah, he really did. Yeah, how can they be so diabolical and yet so dumb? I don't know, but they really are. They really didn't do anything to keep them, keep us from knowing these things, really. Let's see. So he said there were a number of communications between Alex Cox and Lori Vallow deemed to be pertinent to the investigation. It was clear there was a relationship between Alex Cox and Chad Daybell. And those relationships are important because they are the conspirators, you know. They're the ones conspiring to commit these crimes. So he pulled the information from celebrate that he thought was relevant and put it into a PowerPoint presentation so that it was easy to see some of the texts. And I got to say, I want to give mad props to Nate Eaton. I could not get, first of all, in our screen, it was very hard to see the messages. And there's no way on my phone I could type fast enough to get them all out word for word. Um, And I cannot sit in a courtroom with my computer on my knees and type. I can't do it. It kills my back. So I'm using Nate's notes because mine were summaries of the text. He has them word for word, which is awesome. Always got to give props to Nate Eaton at uh, East Idaho News. He is the best. So I want because I knew he'd have these and I want to give them to you word for word. It was just it's so much information that goes by so quickly. I couldn't get it out on my phone. So, you know, he says, Chad and Lori met at a Preparing a People seminar on October 26th of 2018. That conference ended on October 28th. And this was the first known electronic content between them. So the electronic content was that Lori saved a phone number in her phone on the Lori for Style account under the name of Bishop Shumway. That was saved on October 28th of 2018, but we now know that that was the cell phone number for Chad Daybell. Lori saved him in her phone under a fake name from day one. She knew she was going to be having an affair with this guy and was going to be covering up her relationship with him from, you know, protecting it from her husband from the very beginning. She never put his real name in her phone. I found that really powerful. I did not know that. I knew that, you know, all, why did she pick that name? By saying it's a bishop and a last name, very easy to say, oh, that's an old bishop of mine that I had before we met, or that's my parents' bishop, or it was very easily explained away. It would be very easily explained away to Charles. And it's a bishop. It's a, it's a Mormon clergy. So there's nothing wrong with this, right? But she did that from day one. The very first time she saved a single phone number from him, it was under a fake name. I found that really powerful. Let's see. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because I was like, wow, from the very beginning, she knew this was going to be an affair. So then we start with a text string between Lori and, and Audrey. And this was on January 3rd of 2019. Lori says, Hi, Audrey, this is Lori. I would love to talk with you sometime. Text me or call me. I'm excited to be able to talk with you about what we both know. The response from Audrey. Hi, Lori. Guess you talked to Chad. Ha ha. Did he tell you I have a crazy work schedule? I'll have to play it by ear, but I would know I would. know. I think this is a typo, but until 930 p.m. The same for tomorrow. And Laurie responds, he did. That's okay, no pressure. I just think it's fun to talk to someone who knows what's really going on. Audrey responds, so what time usually works for you? I can usually talk to him on my lunch breaks on Monday or Tuesday, Sunday afternoons, I can talk. So we know that Audrey had been doing quite a bit of talking with Chad herself. And what was the thing that she knew? Well, we know from other communications that he had told Audrey that his wife was going to die before her 50th birthday and that he was going to marry Lori. So that's the thing that no one else knows about if you know about the thing. So there's a lot of implying here. The defense did not like that at all, but the problem is, This has been confirmed over and over again by multiple people, by multiple witnesses already. So we know this information happened. Let's see. So. All right. And, And that Chad had asked Audrey to act as the liaison between him and Lori until Tammy died. So he's setting this up so that his friend Audrey, who Tammy knows, remember, Audrey and Tammy had met, can relay messages from Lori to him. So already, Audrey is playing an active role in their affair. You know, I had a lot of questions about Audrey and in her testimony and, you know, how nervous she was and how, you know, very clearly she was covering for herself a bit. And most definitely here because she was literally the liaison between them so that Chad's wife wouldn't suspect that she he was speaking to another woman. And it would be okay because this is just Audrey. You know her, you know. Gross. That's what that is. So now some text messages from March 20th of 2019. This is Lori and Alex. Lori said, t- uh, messages him that she's finding out some great stuff about him. And she was going to the temple to do some ceilings, which is, this is one of the ordinances that Mormons do for people who are dead. When you go in and do ceilings, you are standing in for someone who is no longer living and getting sealed to their spouse for them. So there are two people s- serving as proxies for those two individuals. Uh, so she was going to do those. I've never done that because I didn't go. I've never been to the temple since I was an adult. As a kid, I did baptisms for the dead. I have been baptized for dead people hundreds of times, literally, because they 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 might baptize you for 50 people um, in one go. They just, I'll tell you about it. You wear these white zip up onesie thingies that are made like out of terry cloth or something. I don't know. It's been a long time. You go into the baptismal font. So the baptismal font is this great big thing. And in our temple here in Idaho Falls, it's carved out of marble. And I think it looks like, I think it looked like it was this big tub that there were often all the way around the outside of it. So you have to climb up these stairs and get down into this water. Now, guys, I am five feet tall with my shoes on. I have always been really short. So I'd get into that water. And it was like here to me. It was like chest level. And They would. So I had to keep my my nose plugged ready. And the guy that was baptizing me would have his hand up and he would say the person's name in the baptismal right. And then he would dunk me, bring me up. And then he would say another one and and dunk me and bring me up and dunk me and bring me up and dunk me. And it was over and over again. They could do 50 of them easily. And you just feel like you're about to pass out by the time it's over because you literally only have a minute to you only have a few seconds to breathe in between each one, and then you had to get out in that soaking wet outfit and uh, it was really uncomfortable. I remember how much I hated it. Um, but as a kid, I didn't have a lot of a choice. But definitely never doing that now. But so Lori was you know telling Alex she's going to do ceilings. And then let's see, find my place here. And then um, Alex says, okay, hurry up, please. And then Lori says, going to check everything with my source tonight to make sure I get this all right, but it's really good. We can talk about it tomorrow, hopefully. So Chad really was acting as a religious leader for a lot of these people Audrey, Zulema, Melanie Gibb, uh, who am I forgetting? Alex, at least those people. So there's a lot of go-between type things where Lori will talk to someone. She's going to go ask her source, her source being Chad. But she wasn't using his name, if you'll recall. Um, And then she'll come back and give them their information. So she's like his representative so that he can be the prophet on high, really, is the way that it came across to me. Um, So Hart believed that this was her talking to Chad. Um, because she's he's her source and then relaying that information to Alex because he's basically like an acolyte. Uh, let's see. <clears> Hart <throat> said that Alex and Melanie Boudreau-Pulowski Boudreau, um, in these communications were often soliciting Lori to get inf- religious information from Chad. So Melanie B was another of those. Um, so basically Lori's position was right next to Chad Daybell, like they were on these elevated positions and other people would come to them to seek their counsel and, uh, and advice relating to their revelations and visions and stuff. So they were really, you know, were they acting like cult leaders? Yes. Yes, they were quite a lot. Um, then there's another message. This is between Alex and Lori. Alex says, correct. Charles' body is alive. And then Alex says, what did you learn? And Laurie says, a lot, still working on it. We'll call you later. This was March 26th of 2019. So this is when they start talking about that he is possessed by a demon. So his body is alive, but it's not really Charles in there. That's what they're saying. Right. Hito, that is why the LDS Church has the best genealogy data of any family to yeah, to do those baptisms. Right. I have my own genealogy done back something like 13 generations that I can actually go online and look it up. It's already been done. They're way into genealogy. And part of that is because they go back to, say, my family prior to my family, because my family were part of the founding founding of the of the Mormon church they go back prior to that and then they're going to baptize and confirm and um and then seal all of those people right Hitler's baptism was a huge stir the other one was when they did holocaust victims who were as we know Jewish yeah there's been a lot of a lot of controversy around baptism for the dead and I think it's Super gross. Yes, baptizing Anne Frank, that did happen. Um, yeah, I, just on my own personal feeling of it, I find it really incredibly disrespectful and incredibly arrogant to think that you can choose for someone who's died what religion they would want to be baptized into. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay. So Hart said still working, what, what still working on it meant was that he said that they used that term working on it or working on things a lot. And that's a direct reference to um, them believing that they were battling zombies and dark entities. And that when they would say they were doing the work or working on things, that's what they were working on specifically. So then there's a slide of Melanie Boudreau. Uh, to Lori. This is on July 9th. Remember, this is two days before Charles died. They have, uh, let's see, Lori, they have an elaborate plan. I'll call you soon. Melanie, I could take all the babies with and drive and take our stuff. Lori, you can't go at all. We both need to stay here to defend ourselves. Lori, it's coming to a head. This week will change everything. And Charles died two days later. Um, Smith, wanted to know what it's coming to a head meant. He said it's a reference to the marriage between Lori Vallow and Charles Vallow. And he wasn't allowed to finish that because then Thomas objected and had that asked for it to be stricken from the record. And he did grant that. And Hart says that he learned from Lori's own words that her marriage had deteriorated and was coming to an end, that that's what they were talking about. Uh, he also says that there were messages that indicated that uh, Lori wanted Charles out of her life uh, and didn't want him to be her husband anymore. We know that, you know, she was talking about that for months and months. So then a text on July 9th from Lori to Alex, getting sleepy. So I'm going to need you to stay close to me for the next couple of days. Mel to, she can't go to Utah. They are planking, I think planning some kind of intervention but want Mel out of the way so I'm left alone. This is when Charles and Adam Cox were planning to meet up and talk to Lori and and confront her about the things that had been going on. Um, I need to come get this stuff at your house tomorrow and secure it. Lots to do. Thank you for standing by me. It's all coming to a head this week. I will be like Nephi, I am told, and so will you. And then Lori texts Melanie the next day, Al is here. Charles will be coming over in the morning, planning his death. So Smith wants to know uh, what about Nephi. Who's Nephi? What's this Nephi thing? So he says, and this was hotly um, debated and objected about, but he says that it is, uh, the primary example is when Nephi was commanded to slay Laban. So this is a story A very famous story for Mormons in the Book of Mormon. So Laban had a bunch of documents that Nephi and his family wanted. They were leaving Jerusalem. And what was said in the Book of Mormon is that Nephi was commanded by God to slay Laban to get those records. This is what Hart says. Thomas objected over and over again about the testimony about Nephi says it's vague and outside the scope and, and voice overruled all of those objections. It was clear that um, Hart had done his research. That is the most famous story about Nephi. Now Nephi is a very um, central figure in the Mormon, in the book of Mormon. So there are lots and lots of stories about Nephi, but if you say, I will be like Nephi and then your husband gets killed by your brother. I mean that's that's it's it's not a big leap, especially if you know the book of mormon and you know those stories. Right. Emily says I respect everyone's religious beliefs when it involves predicting a person's death, you have a responsibility to apply some critical thinking to that and you should be held responsible, right? Right. You should. I don't care what your religious beliefs are when you start talking about when somebody's going to die and how much you want them to, and how much you want them out of your life, that's different. Ah, okay. That's interesting, Emily. Emily says, my friend asked if she could baptize my miscarried baby, uh, and I did give her my permission. It It was a kind gesture, and she made sure to get my permission. Mormons genuinely believe that baptism for the dead is a really good thing, because it keeps people from going to hell. That if you're not baptized a Mormon, then you can't go to heaven. So when they're doing it, the belief is misguided. But what they're doing is sincere. They think they're doing something really good for the, those who have crossed over. Oh, so that was very interesting. All the, the Nephi stuff was really interesting because it was really hotly debated. But um, the judge kept it in. Um, she asked again... Let's see. Yeah, so he just says again, Laban was in possession of records that Nephi and his family wanted, and that Nephi was commanded by God to slay Laban and obtain these records. So, you know, the implication here is that Loria has been commanded by God to slay Charles, or have him slay because she tends to not do the slaying herself, as we know. Um. The next slide does show a chat between Lori Vallo, Cole Vallo, and Zach Vallo, And I'm not going to read this whole thing. You've heard it before. This is when she tells them that their dad was dead. So she waits until the next day and sends them a group text that, you know, I have some really sad news. Your dad passed away yesterday. We're still waiting on information from the ME medical examiner. Um, I'll, I'll let you know more when, when I know. And that was basically all she said. And there were, they come back with like, what, what are you talking about? When did it happen? How did it happen? And she doesn't answer them. She doesn't answer them for three days. So that communication is in there. And then there are some communications between Chad, Lori, and Melanie B. And this is on the night of July 13th, 2019. So this is the day after Charles' death. Chad says to Lori, I will check with Allie Bloomer and her husband. Lori says, good idea. Chad to Lori, Allie Bloomer is a 4.1 dark. Her cop husband is 3 dark. I suppose Brandon doesn't know yet about the discovered Charles texts. Lori to Melanie, Allie Bloomer's husband is 3 dark. Emoji. So this was apparently these were friends of Melanie Boudreaux's at the time. Uh, And so she they were giving her a rating on them about whether they should she should be hanging out with them or not. Oh, they were friends of Brandon's. That's right. Um, So Brandon brought Allie and her husband to the house to talk with Melanie at this time. And that's when they identified them as dark, you know, because they were kind of helping Brandon in this situation. Let's see. Then there's a text from Chad to Lori on July 13th, day after Charles' death. No, two days after Charles' death. We've seen it before, but it's the one about how he's saying that he's got kids graduating from BYU, uh, Idaho on the 23rd. And that he, you know, he can't really go anywhere or do anything until that's over. And then he says, I feel she will be gone by then, but I will still have that hoopla to deal with because a lot of family is coming and will stay for July 24th. So he's basically complaining that he's got kids graduating and he's got family coming. And so he's going to have to deal with that hoopla, which was, you know, apparently not celebration for his graduating children and that he believed Tammy would be dead by then because they're trying to plan a visit for him to come and see uh, Lori. So then another one on July 14th, Chad DeLore. Good morning, my most beautiful Lily. Thanks for, okay, this one is so bad. Um, Thanks for joining me in the shower this morning. Wow, getting ready to leave for my meetings. Does noon your time look like a time we could talk? I love you so immensely that the whole universe knows it. And very soon the people on this little blue globe will know it too. Um. (laughs) gross i think everyone sort of gasped and gagged over that one now here's the thing they weren't together she was in arizona he was in idaho so this is another one of those spiritual visitations through their portal in which they apparently had a shower together yeah everyone was feeling a little sick after that and he one of the things that um Hart was illustrating about stuff like that. The reason he, he included those things is because he wanted to show the relationship between Lori and Chad that they, you know, they were very much in love with each other and, and you know, pretty willing to do anything to be together. Um, Hart said that um, he, investigators had repeatedly heard from multiple witnesses, and we've heard from many of them on the stand that Chad told multiple people his wife Tammy was going to die. Uh, and, you know, these messages were sent three months before her death. So still planning, making, you know, expecting that. So Lori responds to the shower text. <laughs> Morning, sunshine. Sure. Call me if you get a chance. Um, They used multiple names for each other. As you know, Lori and Elena or Lily and Elena were mostly Lori's. And Chad was James and Raphael. Um He said, um, he said that they often implied that they had been together when they were physically not in the same state. So we know from other things that they said they were using these spiritual portals to be together. I don't know why they had to conspire to, you know, for a way to chat, for a way for Chad to come and visit if they could just see each other in the portal. But whatever. Then on July 14th, Chad texts, Lori, I love you so much. You are my greatest desire and my best friend. Now on with the story. And this is when he goes on to text another part of the James and Elena story to her. Um, that he's written to his goddess lover. We've talked about that quite a few times. There's an excerpt of it too. I'm not going to read it because I don't want to throw out my breakfast. <laughs> um, he did read the romance novel between Chad and Laurie. It came out by text message. Um, he didn't put the whole thing in here, but he put part, parts of it because he feels like it was relevant. Um, because he said it was it was in part historically accurate and that it was following the path of their actual relationship with a bunch of fantasy thrown in. So then we have um, on the evening of July 14th, Chad to Lori. Hanging in there, but really missing you too. Please find out the name of Mel's camp out in Utah. I have no intention of going, but I feel it is our avenue to get together, whether she is still there or not. Uh, Lori says it's Zion's family camp. Mel speaks Wednesday night and Dave speaks Thursday night. Shelly M is their main speaker. I roll. And Chad says, well, that would work for me to get away, though. I spoke at it two years ago, which is when I first met Mel. What time do you fly out tomorrow? Um, <clears throat> Chad, my trip to speak at the camp. July 24th through the 26th has been approved and is now on the calendar. Approved. Yeah. Which I think means he told Tammy he's flying to speak in this. He's flying out to speak at this camp. And what he was really doing was flying out to see Lori. Gross. Let's see. And then we're almost done because this was, this ended at noon yesterday. So July 14th, Chad says to Lori, I need so badly to gently kiss you for hours. Uh, and then he said it, it, would, it would likely lead to other activities. Lori to Chad, likely or luckily, Chad to Lori, it would likely lead to nakedness. <laughs> gross. Yeah, very, very gross. And then there were the text messages that came from Zach and Cole Vallow um, where they confront her three days after Charles was killed and they are demanding answers about what happened to their dad. If JJ is safe, if the other kids are safe, what's going on. They said that they hadn't heard from anyone else. They hadn't heard from Tylee or Colby. Like no one was reaching out to them. Like, Oh my God, Charles is dead. We're so sorry. This is so sad. Nobody in this family was acknowledging his death. Um, Lori had just not been responding to them at all, but had been texting Chad and Melanie Boudreau this whole time. So one last question at the end of the hearing was Smith asked if he, if Hart had seen any signs of regret or sorrow um, in any of the text messages after Charles' death. So had Lori texted anyone feeling bad about Charles dying that was hotly um, objected to and the objection was overruled and he said none so literally in all of her communications because he's got them all she didn't say she was sorry about her husband's death to anyone she didn't say she was sad she didn't say she regretted it she didn't say she felt bad or that she was grieving nothing absolutely nothing which I think is terrifying, frankly. I mean, that's, what a sociopath, not really. What a psychopath. She's a psychopath. She doesn't really feel sad or sorry. I mean, if your husband was killed accidentally in an altercation with your brother, wouldn't you feel absolutely horrible about that? About how it happened, what happened, and now you're a widow. Like, wouldn't you be having some really big emotions around all of that? Well, you would think she didn't express anything to anyone from her phone. Can you imagine? Yeah. Stone cold heart. You're right. Yeah. Well, that's where uh, we finished up for the day. They, I don't know why we ended early on Friday. They didn't really say, but it was planned from the day before. They do tend to like to get out of there early on Friday. I'm sure that the people that are from my area probably go home for the weekend. They probably get a break and get to go home. So they're probably just trying to give them a chance to get out of there. I don't know. Uh, let me give you a little update on Melanie Boudreaux. So according to what um, her attorney, Josh Gardner, who, Garner, who I went to high school with, um, has talked with Nate and that she, Melanie was told that it was okay for her to leave that she never was called as a witness. I think that, I think this is whitewashed quite a bit, but uh, that she had never actually been called as a witness and that she needed to get home to their kids. And that was her reasoning for leaving and that she is not in trouble, but she is still under subpoena. So it doesn't mean she's not going to come back to testify. Um, And we don't know, did she really violate the exclusionary rule or not? Or did she only do what Brandon, what uh, Ian Pulaski said she did, which was just to see a headline. So we shall see on that. But she is not at this point under in any kind of trouble, but she is still under subpoena. So we may still hear from her uh, as the point. I hope that we do because she was very deeply in all of this. And I really think she knows way more than she's going to (laughs) say. Yeah. Cold as a Satan taco in Antarctica. Right. Yeah, I sound exhausted. I am. I'm tired. I'm glad I get a couple of days off from all of this. I need a break from it. The thing is, this testimony from this particular witness is so important. We have not heard the text messages that happen when they're discussing the kids' deaths. We've heard some stuff about Tammy. We've heard some stuff about Charles. We've not heard yet what the text messages and communication were between them around prior to the kids dying, when they died, after, like, and, and apparently, according to um, Agent Hart, they exist. So this is really key. So Monday's going to be a really important day. Uh, Darla's going to be in the courtroom. I believe Katie is going to be in the courtroom and our Aunt Sue. They're all going to be in the courtroom because this will be a super important moment in this trial when we hear what were their communications around the children's deaths. It's going to be chilling, but I hope it's also going to be damning that we're finally going to get to a point of, yes, we know that um, we're going to get a conviction here. I think we're getting closer. Are they saving Melanie for Chad's trial? I don't know. I mean, I the word was that they were both going to testify while they were here. And I think that had been the original plan, honestly. I think this is being kind of dumbed down a bit for what the actual truth of it, but we shall see what next week brings. I do think we're getting closer, guys, to um, the prosecution being done with their case. We're not there yet, but we're close. Yeah, uh, yeah, Snow Queen, I could have done without the shower scene, right? Me too, everybody was like, whoa. Right, Melanie did refuse to say anything negative about Lori long ago, but how deeply is she in this? Has she made a deal for her testimony? And if she doesn't testify, is that right for her to get out of it? I don't think it is at all. Uh, Yeah, so Melanie and Ian now live in Arizona. So she went back to Arizona. So we'll see. We'll see what we get. Next week should be very interesting. Right? Doug Hart may be the best way to wrap it up. I know. That's what I was thinking too, Chandra that hearing this in chronological order, all of their communications from their own words, Lori's own words, Lori's own communications with the people that are involved are as damning as you can get, I think. Particularly because I think we're not going to hear from her on the stand. I could be wrong. Is Zulema the only one confirmed to have a deal? Here's the thing. Zulema does not have a deal in Idaho that we know of. She only has a deal in Arizona. So that's in relation to Alex. and and potentially Charles. We don't know if she has a deal here. We've thought that because they testified at the grand jury, that it's possible that Mel B, Mel G, and Zulema have some kind of a deal in Idaho for their testimony. But if Mel B punks out on that, then what happens, right? Good question. Will she be charged? And will she eventually be charged for the shooting of Brandon Boudreau? Because there's a lot of evidence here um, relating to that. Right, Jessica? I think so too, that Melanie B is an accessory. I do. And I, I hope we're going to see that eventually. Okay, well, we will be back to tell you what happens in court on Monday. It's going to be a big day. It's hard though, because there's so much objecting going on, it takes up so much time. Uh, you know, where we only had a half day, we didn't get to Hardly any of his actual report. I'm hoping we get to a lot more of it on Monday. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know it. Um, You know how to support us. We're truecrimesquad.com. You can go there to tip us if you like. Um, You don't have to. It's not expected, but it is much appreciated. I am going to get some rest and have some fun this weekend. I want you to all do that as well. Take a break from this. We don't always need to be talking about or hearing about this story. Um, and I know it's hard not to, because it's hard to not think about it now that we're so in the thick of it, but take good care of yourselves. I'm going to do the same. And, uh, we are the truth crime squad. Thanks for being here guys.